0: Amen. All right, well, hopefully you have uh, a sheet, and if you have your Bible, you're going to need it. Um, Basically, let me just kind of explain to you what we're doing and why. So we have um, what we call uh, equip classes, and so we are, um, according to Ephesians 4.11, we are, are called as shepherds and pastors to equip the church for ministry, and in doing that, we have very informal things like road groups where we get together and we we love each other and we fellowship with one another and we disciple one another in terms of, of hearing each other's hurts and pains and sorrows and speaking truth to one another and love and all these things. And then we also have what we might call more formal discipleship on Wednesday nights and Thursday mornings with men and women where we are learning to study the Bible. We're going through the book of Ephesians and, and we're just digging into God's Word. And then what we're doing now is we stop for... Basically, three times a year for four weeks each time. And we gather as a church to know each other, to fellowship with one another. We stop road group, we stop youth group, we stop studies, and we come here to know and to grow. And so we have different topics that we're going to talk about um, in each of these three different quarters. And as we shared in the very beginning of uh, the year, kind of the vision for the church of restore to restore and this idea that. We are being restored as uh, men and women of God. And there was three parts to that. We are restored as worshipers, restored as family members, restored as disciples, and restored as ambassadors. And these three identities are what we're trying to build. And so any one of these seminars is probably going to focus on one of those four things. This one is going to be more what we'd call worshipers. And so worshipers is, is this idea of knowing God more deeply through study, through prayer, through meditation. It is, in many ways, understanding who God is and, and allowing that to impact us. Family takes place a little bit here as we gather together as family. Next quarter, we'll do biblical counseling. So four weeks to basically help in, a, in somewhat of a boot camp style of way to equip us to be better counselors of one another, better disciples of one another so that we could basically function as the Bible calls us to be, a priesthood of believers who are able to use the Word of God to admonish and to correct, to encourage and to help um, one another rather than being dependent upon the pastor um, or a counselor. We become counselors. And there's certainly those times when a pastor and a a trained counselor is is needed, but we want to equip you to do that. The third quarter is kind of up in the air right now. We're not really sure what it's going to be. It could be all kinds of things, uh, but we'll figure that out. This one is about this big word called sanctification. So what I'm going to do is just kind of go through that sheet, if you will, and give you a lot of information. It'll be stuff on the board. And explain to you today what the next four weeks are going to look like in terms of explaining this concept of sanctification. Now, you may or may not know that um, there's a little bit of a problem with this word, sanctification. And my problem, I mean... There's a little bit of a tension, maybe war, going on inside the evangelical church, um, and it's over this word sanctification. And there's different ways to describe this conflict. Some call it grace versus works. Some call it identity versus activity. Some call it um, living in Christ versus living like Christ. And and they create in many ways these Um, these tensions between two things that seem in conflict, but I'm not sure they are. And attempts to navigate this tension have created all kinds of bloggers and and organizations devoted to one side or the other, books. And if you want to kind of see two examples of of the different sides of this conflict of sanctification, one book uh, you may be familiar with is called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything by Tolian I can I don't know if I'll try to say his last name um, Chavidian, Chavidian, something um, and he wrote a book um, and then there's another book written by a guy named Kevin DeYoung called a hole in our holiness so if you want to see like the the what the issues are those are good examples of it not completely um, but they're they're good examples and whether you read the books or not is really not important. What is important is that we understand something as we go through the next four weeks, and that is what it means to be in Christ and what it means to grow in Christ. And are those different? Are those the same? Statements like I'll put like there on the board are becoming commonplace in the church. And you may read that and go, there's no problem with that. It says, if we are in Christ and he is in us, then we have rested, completely ceased from any and all working and striving for justification and for sanctification. There's no more work to be done. Now, depending on how you understand those terms, that statement can be full of truth and full of some false truth. But it sounds good. And there are aspects that are good, but again, it all depends on how you understand the terms. And the big question we have is this. If you go to the next slide, what is the difference or the relationship, as I say, between belief and behavior? How do these work together? How does belief lead to behavior, behavior lead to belief, or how do these work? And that's the tension they're trying to navigate. So there's a lot of confusion about the answer to that question and so we have to begin by defining terms so you're gonna hear uh, some terms tonight but you're gonna hear a lot of terms next week next week is gonna be like theological overload as we talk about this big thing called the atonement like are you serious yes we're gonna be a theologically equipped biblically sound church Okay. now we have to define terms and we need to understand terms like justification these are terms in the Bible. Justification. If I were to ask you, what is justification? You may go, I don't know. Justify didn't sin? Like something like that you may have heard before. I'm telling you that's kind of right, but we'll talk about that. Sanctification. A word like mortification, if you've ever heard of it. Glorification. All these cation words. But what is most important is not that you just understand definitions, but how they apply to your lives because theology does impact behavior and you have a theology whether you understand it or not that is guiding how you live and guiding what you think and how you perceive and how you understand and we want to bring biblical clarity because right now there's confusion about a couple things number one whether we are you know sanctified although i have not it for you whether I'm sanctified in my flesh or I'm sanctified in my spirit, or I'm both. Do I I mature in my spirit? Do I mature just in my flesh? Both? What happens? Confusion about what role I play in my maturity, my growing in Christ, and what role God plays. Who does what exactly? Confusion about whether my acceptance is based on my obedience to Him, or whether my obedience to Him is based on my acceptance by Him those are very different and that will color how you understand God and color I believe or dictate perhaps the joy of your salvation there's confusion about whether okay, am I perfect now or am I becoming perfect will I ever be perfect what does it mean to to be in Christ right now there's confusion about whether any of my efforts to grow and mature in Christ are considered a work like is it okay to be a work is work a bad word because I thought we were all saved by grace so we have this tension and I do believe that that the tension is resolvable and it's important that we resolve it because we could potentially misunderstand our salvation and misunderstand other things of the Lord so I want to set the basic stage for the next four weeks, beginning with point one. The meaning of this big word, sanctification. Okay. The plain meaning of the word sanctification, which you'll see in the Bible a lot, and we'll give you some scriptures in a second about that. The plain meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning. That's the plain meaning, not necessarily theological meaning. We'll get to that. So to sanctify someone or to sanctify something is to see that or to set that thing or that person apart, particularly for its intended use by its designer. So practically speaking, you could sanctify a teacup when it's used to drink tea. Or a hammer is sanctified when it is used to hammer nails. And it is very much unsanctified when it is tried, you try to drink tea from it. Theologically speaking, things are sanctified when they are used for the purpose that God intends. So a human being is sanctified when he or she lives according to God's design and purpose. Okay, So it can be used very plainly, but theologically, it talks about being used for God's purpose. Now, as we get into the Bible, we begin to see the primary kind of meaning... Of sanctification is this idea of separation you probably have heard a word called consecration as well same idea and it does connote just like the plain meaning of being set apart so in the Old Testament when something was sanctified or set apart it was identified as special or holy it was something God did or God declared and we just preached on the seventh day of creation where we first see this sanctification concept in Genesis 2 3 it said then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it I don't know if it says sanctified in the ESV it does in the NASB but says he sanctified it because in in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made he does it again and you'll want to just write down references that you'll look up later in Exodus twenty nine thirty four. So Genesis two three, Exodus twenty nine thirty four. And speaking about the uh, temple and the tabernacle, I should say, not the temple yet. I think twenty nine thirty four is wrong. I think it's twenty nine forty two, not thirty four. But. In speaking about it, says, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. And there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, Aaron also and his sons. I will consecrate to serve me as priests. So the primary meaning is this idea of Sanctification is an act of recognizing or declaring something as holy or special. That act is something that God also commanded His people to do. In Exodus 13, the first two verses, He says to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. He says, set the firstborn apart for me. Okay? Exodus 31, 12 and 13 says it again. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So... They were to set apart the Sabbath, which was part of the Jewish law in Exodus 20, and it was to be sanctified by them to remind them that they were a sanctified people. So set apart this day to remind you that you are a set-apart people. Okay, That's the primary biblical meaning, but there's an additional meaning that is also in Scripture. The secondary meaning of this word Sanctification involves the idea of what we'll call moral or ethical holiness. And it's seen in words like renewal and cleansing and transformation. And in this sense, sanctification isn't an act of setting apart as much as it's describing a process of being made more holy or more righteous. An example of this is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, which plainly says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he describes it, That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God so sanctification there the will of God is your sanctification which is controlling your body more ceasing to pursue sexual immorality and living holy lives which assuming that's going to grow in in value and quality and all those things so in the New Testament this word sanctification is it means holiness and the biblical words for sanctification and holy and saint they all come from that same word same root in the Greek but the context determines as we read about sanctification which one we're talking about is this an act that has happened or is this a process that is happening either something is set apart and made holy or something is being made holy now In one sense, as we read the Old Testament, we know that God is the only one who is holy. Holiness is an attribute that God Himself possesses that men do not possess in themselves. God is completely separate, completely distinct, that no human being or thing shares the same holiness that God possesses in His nature. But Scripture does speak about different holy things, and God does call men... Than women to be holy as he is holy. So, the essence of sanctification as we get into point two is about salvation ultimately. So, when we talk about what sanctification is, the essence of it is best understood in relationship to salvation. So, men in their sin are, by definition, imperfect, unholy. And unsanctified. Okay, so God is perfectly holy, never will be any different, men are not. And the unsanctified state of fallen humanity is not caused because of a lack of effort or poor motivation. There is something inherently wrong inside of men, namely sin and when Adam sinned he and the entire human race forfeited that which made it possible for them to function as they were designed and to live in the presence of a holy God so there was a time very short time it seems where men functioned as they were designed and they enjoyed the presence of a holy God now because of sin not only do they not function as they were designed as we're designed they also in themselves cannot live in the presence of a holy God they cannot work to restore themselves they cannot find holiness somehow to enjoy once again God's presence and so this thing called salvation has to occur and salvation is an act of God's grace so if we put, put the next one up, I think. Okay. So when we talk about sanctification, we're going to talk about salvation a lot, but then we're going to talk about living out that salvation. Now, the Westminster, uh, I think this is from the larger catechism, is a, a confession and a catechism written in, what, 1646? Someone probably knows better than me. Uh, and there's a series of questions and answers. That's what a catechism is. And it has this question about what is sanctification. And it's very dense. It's very rich, very full. Okay, So if we read it carefully, it says, Sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world, chosen to be holy, are, should be in time, in time, through the powerful operation of His Spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts, and those graces stirred up, increased, and strengthened as they more and more die until sin and rise unto the newness of life. That last sentence is very important. Those graces so stirred up, increased and strengthened as they more and more die. Wait, more and more die? I thought we just died once with Christ. As we more and more die and rise unto the newness of life. So, if you think about salvation for a second, we'll return to that, salvation is a word that describes the deliverance of men from the curse of sin through Christ but salvation is both an act of God's grace and a continuing work of God's grace even though God doesn't continually adopt us into his family he only adopts us into his family one time we'll talk about adoption next next week but he only adopts us one time He does continually help us become more mature children until we face or are with Him face to face. Sanctification then is this term that is used to describe what I'll just call layers of deliverance. There is a past and a present and a future layer in other words, we have been saved, and we are being saved, and we will be saved in eternity. And the Bible uses these same ideas repeatedly. It gives us three different kinds of verses, if you will. I'll give you three. Some talk about having been sanctified. An example of that is in 1 Corinthians 1-2. And 1 Corinthians 1-2, very... First couple of verses of the letter it says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, past tense, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both are their Lord and ours. He's writing a letter to those who have been sanctified. Okay, So there's this concept of having been sanctified. Then there is this concept of being sanctified which again the idea of being made holy so we have this idea of being set apart and yet something is happening versus again out of 1st Thessalonians 5:23 and 24 Paul writes now may the God of peace himself peace himself sanctify you completely hey, Wait a second now we're talking about sanctifying as a process something's happening may he sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ so we have this concept of having been sanctified a concept of you are being sanctified and then there is this idea that we will be sanctified someday fully that's more often described as glorification okay so really what we're talking about, some people will say, we have been sanctified, and they they would call that justification. We are being sanctified, and they would call that sanctification. And we are going to be glorified or fully sanctified, and they will call that glorification. Okay. They can all be described under this concept of sanctification depending on how you define the term. And if you don't define the term correctly, you can have really wasted air arguments about what the Bible says in certain places now the will be sanctified verses there's several one is Romans 830 and um, I won't read that one but I will read one out of Philippians as I was reading right before uh, we began and it says this Philippians 3 20 and 21 what says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So it's this idea of transformation yet to come, of complete sanctification yet to be to occur. Okay. And even though all of it is a result of grace this is the question that we're going to deal with does grace mean passivity when we're talking about all forms of sanctification in other words what is my role what is god's role is this an active thing or is this a passive thing am i simply acted upon and set apart Or my participating in my holiness when we when we sit here and go let's train for godliness are we wasting our energy or is something happening that god is doing what is it exactly because again it comes back to this real big question if it's whether or not you believe your obedience is going to lead to acceptance with god or if God's acceptance of you changes your obedience. And can we grow in obedience after that? Or we do do nothing. We just say there's no more work to be done, like that quote that was shared earlier. Sanctification, well, I should say this. We know that sin kills us in all ways and that we cannot work to save ourselves. But how exactly... Does the cross empower us to work out our salvation? Okay, Even though we know that sin kills us and we can't work to save ourselves, how exactly does the cross empower us to work out that salvation? And we'll dig in deeply into the cross next week. And the question is, what has the cross done for us beyond just save us? And what does that even mean, saved us? I believe that sanctification is made possible by the grace of God, whether it is passively received through hearts that are softened or eyes he has opened or actively pursued with the tools and the energy that he provides. It's all grace. But we're going to talk about four kinds over the next four weeks. So on your sheet, I think it says point 0.3, it says kinds of sanctification. So theologically speaking, we're going to divide sanctification into four different kinds to help us understand this. One is called, and I'll explain these, one I'll explain more in depth and the others we'll explain in the next couple weeks. One is called preparatory sanctification. For those who are Reformed, this will not be difficult for you to believe. For those who don't know what Reformed is, hold on to your hats. Um, the second is positional sanctification. Some would call definitive sanctification. Okay, you can use either term. doesn't matter. The third is progressive sanctification. Some would call experiential sanctification. And the last is prospective sanctification or future sanctification or final sanctification that will be the next four weeks next week we'll talk about positional sanctification week after that we'll talk about progressive sanctification which is the one that's the most heated well, actually, one week after that that's Thanksgiving The week after that and the final week we'll talk about glorification and what that looks like but let's just Go through these real briefly so you get an idea of what we're going to be talking about. Um, basically, before God acts to sanctify us, or dare I say, adopt us into his family, he prepares us for sanctification. What do I mean by that? Well, you can write down this definition, and I'll explain it. Preparatory sanctification is this. It is the work prior to salvation, whereby the Holy Spirit sets apart a person to believe in Christ. And this irresistible work is done before the creation of the world according to God's divine purposes of displaying the glories of His grace in Christ. Did not write that definition I can't remember where I got it but it's pretty good so I used it bottom line it's the pre-work prep work for salvation we would say that men do not participate in this this is completely passive there is no when you don't exist choosing anything for anyone the Spirit of God works in the heart of every person who is saved before he or she is saved. He sets them apart to believe. We do not know who is set apart to believe. That is according to God. The Spirit of God's work in salvation is irresistible. In other words, if God chooses to save somebody, He's going to save them. salvation belongs to the Lord and the spirit of God's work in salvation is connected with God's sovereign purposes he does not tell us who he saves when he saves them or why he saves them or chooses them it rests with him and his sovereign purposes I'll give you several scriptures that say the exact same thing I just said but he's saying it so it's much better Three scriptures, Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 says this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. That is sanctification. Before the foundation of the world, He set apart, He chose people to make holy and blameless. Now, in that choosing, He has not yet made them holy and blameless. But before the foundation of the world, there is a plan to save a people and to sanctify them. In love, it says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, he chooses people, pre-work, sanctifies them before the foundation of the world to the praise of his glorious grace. Why would he do that? So we would praise his glorious grace. So we would make much of God's love towards sinners. Period. That's the reason. 1 Peter 1, 1-2 says this, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ and for sprinkling with His blood may grace and peace be multiplied to you so the sanctification of the Spirit was the pre-work to prepare people for obedience to Christ right okay? in the very beginning again it talks about the elect exiles and then 2nd 2 Thessalonians 2 13 but we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So you can write this phrase down to summarize it. Preparatory sanctification elects, we'll just say men, it's women as well, but men elects men to be holy and blameless without sin. So preparatory sanctification elects men and women, people, to be holy and blameless without sin. They are not yet holy and blameless without sin at that point. But initial sanctification is God before the foundation of the world sets apart a people. And that's keynote aspect of reform theology okay that what distinguishes our theology from from perhaps some others still considered evangelical churches it's unique but biblical all right I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that but I want to briefly hit the other ones and we'll dive in deeply to these other ones the next couple weeks positional sanctification so the next one so the pre-work if you will of salvation prepares us for the atonement as Christians for those who put their faith and trust and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ they are delivered from the penalty of guilt and the shame of sin the moment they encounter God's grace. This is why Paul can write in this verse, 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 9-10. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us, And called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel that is in 2nd Timothy 1, 9 through 10. This is what is called positional sanctification. When the salvation that God prepared for you, if you will, before the foundation of the world is applied. Positional sanctification, to summarize it in one term, delivers us... From the penalty and the authority of sin, when we talk about being sanctified. Positionally, it means the atonement of Jesus Christ has been applied to us, and I'll explain in ten ways how that happens next week. But you have a secure position; you have been delivered. Prepared for deliverance is preparatory sanctification. There are those who have before the foundation of the world been prepared who have not yet experienced the grace of the application of what's going to happen before they die. And this begs questions like again, what did God accomplish on the cross for us? What does faith in the cross do to me? I mean, what does it mean to be in Christ and Did I save myself or did Jesus save me? And this will apply to all kinds of aspects in terms of your motivation for godliness at all, security your salvation, all kinds of things. Positional sanctification is huge. It's where it begins. And we'll dive deeply into that next week. There's not, I shouldn't say there's not a lot, but there's not as much disagreement about that in today's church as there is about the next one: progressive sanctification. In other words, even though we're saved by the gospel, we're saved by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, Paul seems to indicate that we are also being saved, as I said earlier, by the same like this idea. I'm, I have been sanctified, am I being sanctified? I have been saved and I'm being saved what does that even mean in first Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2 here's how he says it now I'll remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved now he's talking to believers because he says brothers if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain in other words, well, that's the end of the verse. I started speaking my own verse, words. So in one sense, we have sanctification described as what has been done, and in another sense, we have Paul describing something that is continuing. And this is why Paul can say in one, or Philippians 1, six, which is a very well-known verse, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So even though we have been sanctified, God is still sanctifying us in our daily lives. And so as we mature in Christ, however that happens, and we won't talk about that yet, but however that happens, as we mature, I think we would all agree that maturity occurs, we are becoming in practice what we already are positionally. So progressive sanctification is basically living out who God says positionally we've been sanctified to be. And though we never experience perfection in this life, over time, we begin, hopefully, to love Jesus more and love sin less. So if you want to get a phrase for it, progressive sanctification delivers us not from, as we said before, the penalty and authority of sin. That's already occurred. Progressive sanctification delivers us from the influence of sin. Those are different. Sin no longer has authority over you. Sin no longer has a penalty to accuse you of, if you will, or to condemn you. But we still sin. So, how do we sin less? And therein lies the problem. Is that God? Is that me? Do I do something? Do I just believe something? Is it all cerebral? Is it physical? What do I do? Because we would all agree, those honest few, that we sin, and if we're in Christ, we don't desire that. But due to some different experiences that people have with combating sin, we come up with these different kind of Understandings of progressive sanctification. And it asks us to wrestle with questions like, what does it mean that I'm sanctified and being sanctified? What does it mean that I'm adopted and yet I am still growing? And what role do I play, and what role does God play? And and what are the tools? Like how how does God sanct what am I supposed to do? Is prayer a means of sanctification? Is reading the Bible a, a you know mark of righteousness, or is it a means to change me? What are the tools, and if I read the Bible or if I pray, is that a work that I'm doing, or is that a grace of God? And so there seems to be two. Extre- we're gonna, I'm gonna generalize, but typically Christians fall in one of these two categories as they're trying to resolve these, these questions. You have on one side, we're just gonna, I'm gonna generalize and be mean and give a label. You have a hyperworks, a lot of people like to call them legalists, self-righteous, whatever term you like to describe, but remember they need grace too. So in your pride, as you're making fun of them, be careful. So you have hyperworks people, right? And hyperworks people wrongly believe that their work matters too much. Hyperwork, or the other side, I'm sorry, is the hyper grace nothing wrong with being gracious nothing wrong with a lot of grace but I'm using it in a negative connotation to make a point hyper grace and hyper works hyper works thinks their work matters too much hyper grace people believe their work doesn't matter enough or at all and there's a loss of gospel-centeredness for both groups and it usually A result of a bad experience with the other group. What I mean is, hyperworks people typically have reacted from an upbringing that was from hyper grace. And hyper grace people become that because they grew up in an environment that was incredibly legalistic. It's crazy, but it makes sense. And they both blame each other for the problems in the church. In truth they're both very reactive to one another they're both very deceived I think in different ways and as I said they both blame the other as they both feel very entitled to being right and I think both are wrongly focused on themselves as they both claim to focus on Jesus I will go into this more depth depth let me just briefly say Hyperworks people are very self dependent and often self righteous. They believe that they save themselves, gain approval, and elicit God's love by what they do. Believing that they have to do everything, they feel that they are entitled to get paid for doing their good works. And so they end up making the grace of Jesus more expensive than Jesus' blood. And they encourage others to do more and to think less and just be righteous. And what this mentality creates, the kind of Christians it creates, is basically very inauthentic Christians. And they elevate being spiritual over being what Jesus calls poor in spirit. Humble about their brokenness. They're very hypocritical, they're very hypercritical, and they're very dishonest about their sin. And they make very intimidating friends, if they have any. The hyper grace people are really no different in their self-focus at the heart of it Um, they basically and again I'm generalizing I realize this they sit and ponder how much God loves them how much God has forgiven them how much God accepts them and they do nothing in response and they tell other people they shouldn't do anything in response just believe They are content to spend hours contemplating how much Jesus loves and celebrate how little they have to do. They they praise that. They talk about that. We don't have to do anything. We don't got to do anything. We don't got to do anything. We have to do nothing. Even if that's true, they talk about it a little too much. I think they make grace a little cheaper than the death of Jesus and they encourage others to believe more and do less. And instead of inauthentic Christians what this creates is uh, and there's been recent articles about this I thought it was interesting it creates authentic Christians authentic Christians so inauthentic Christians they elevate being spiritual over being poor in spirit authentic Christians elevate being real over being holy and they instead of wearing their badge of good works to define them They wear their badge of brokenness to define them. And they almost revel in sharing the identity as one screwed up and broken more than they revel or talk about the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus and the pursuit of such things. Very different. Generalizing like crazy, I recognize that. But it represents two very real understandings of sanctification. And maturing in Christ and growing in Christ. The last category is uh, prospective or future sanctification, and we will deal with that uh, in week four. And this is basically final sanctification. This is the future, what is called often glorification of the believer, and it is realized at the final resurrection when the believer is completely transformed into the likeness of Christ. And presented before the Lord as holy and blameless, like He was, she was designed to be. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is the promise and the agent for this future glorification. It is the seal and the guarantee that this will happen. I should say He is the seal and guarantee. In in essence, final sanctification completes our salvation until the final resurrection where Jesus returns or we return to him there is no completion if you will of sanctification or salvation but at that time at future final prospective sanctification it brings our position and our practice together and it delivers us completely from the presence of sin so As we live now, the Holy Spirit is without doubt delivering us from the influence of sin. And in Christ, we are delivered from the authority of sin, having been prepared for that deliverance. And there will be some day when we are delivered completely from it, where our flesh is completely removed, if you will, and we are no longer experiencing the brokenness of sin physically, emotionally, intellectually, in every other way. And so we ask questions like, well, will I ever achieve perfection of the flesh in this life? And what happens to my spirit and my flesh at the resurrection? And how can I believe that this will actually happen? How can I, how can I hope in this? How can I know that that will happen? How do I know the Holy Spirit's in me? That's what we're talking about. We'll talk about that. A couple of verses for that. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. In Ephesians 1 13 and 14 speaking about the Holy Spirit so the last week i will speak a lot about that it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee guarantee of what right Ephesians 1 13 and 14 says in him also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? So we have, in some sense, an inheritance now and have an inheritance waiting for us. And that waiting for us is that completion of sanctification. It is the glorification, the fullness of our salvation, deliverance from the presence of sin. And so I'll close with this. You go, does it really even matter? All this. Big words and all this stuff. And I would say yes is the short answer. The Bible speaks about this a lot, and there's a lot of confusion about it. But I would say that your joy and your salvation and many other things is dependent in many ways upon how you understand certain scriptures and particularly the words that are used in those scriptures. And so I'll lay out really quickly, and I think they're listed on there, here are the ten reasons why it's important. So when you go back home and you're like, that was good food, but I'm not going back to listen to Sam again, whatever, fine. You'll know why you should. For these reasons, right? This is a teaching-like ploy that I use. That's a high school teacher like, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to tell you this. Well, same idea. Number one, biblical sanctification. So understanding biblical sanctification. There's lots of unbiblical sanctification, but biblical sanctification is, helps us appreciate the sovereignty of God in salvation. The sovereignty of God in salvation. The salvation belongs to the Lord. Number two, biblical sanctification, and we won't understand all these this week, but obviously all four, helps us understand the true purpose of your salvation. <clears throat> I said it before and I'll say it again. Your salvation was never meant for you. It was to the praise of his glorious grace as is your continuing sanctification as will be your future complete salvation it is always and forever about the Lord which always and forever blesses us number three biblical sanctification helps us gain assurance in our salvation who doesn't want to be assured of salvation I want to know I'm saved Number four, biblical sanctification helps us know the right motivations. And there was a typo on that one. I think I did it twice. The right motivations for pursuing godliness because there are wrong motivations pursuing godliness. We do not pursue godliness so that God will love us more. When you understand positional sanctification, you will see God cannot love you more because he's loved you completely in every way he possibly can. So we rest in that, but we still pursue godliness With a different motivation. Not to make God love us, but in response to how much God already does. We'll talk about that. Five, biblical sanctification helps us enjoy our identity and life in Christ. I kid you not, a lot of Christians are some of the most joyless, sad sacks I've ever met. And I'm convinced it's because they truly don't understand. Things like positional or progressive sanctification. And they're despairing over how sinful they think they are, and how bad they think they are, and how difficult life is. This is why we study this. Six, biblical self, uh, sanctification helps us employ the tools of grace. Well, you know, the tools of grace God gave us to mature, He has given us tools. That do help change us from the inside out but number seven it also helps us depend upon the Holy Spirit to mature interesting he's given us tools to use but he also says you need to depend upon the Spirit to mature which is it Well, what if it's both like 50 50 no like 100 100 number eight biblical sanctification helps us experience victory in your fight against sin when you are struggling with the same sin over and over again, I will tell you that the heart of it is a misunderstanding, probably, of your position in Christ. That's where it begins. But even when you understand that, we struggle and we'll, I want to succeed in my, I want to love Jesus more and sin less. We all do. There are means to do that. When First Thessalonians five says, The will of God is your sanctification, control your bodies, he provides us tools and means to do that. It's not just, hey, good luck. Last couple, big biblical sanctification helps us delight in the law of the Lord. It helps us change our perspective on God's rules and appreciate them as God's loving instructions from a Father. And lastly, biblical sanctification helps us hope and look forward to our future perfection. And it's important to keep your eyes on that. There's a reason why Paul says there is in an inheritance waiting for you, sealed, guaranteed, because he wants us to remember that as we are struggling through this life, trying to live and work out our salvation and live like Christ. So next week, what we will do is we will go over positional sanctification, which is going to go over a lot of terms to describe what happened on the cross. And for those, when, they, when you say, I believe in the person of work of Jesus Christ, I'm going to go, these are the things that you believe. This is what it means to be in Christ. My hope is that it's a transformational experience for you. We will also end that time with a QA. and a We won't have time tonight, but we'll have a time for Q&A just to kind of go, okay, I'll have a whiteboard up next time. It's going to be rad. It makes me much more comfortable. Uh, and we'll be writing chicken scratch. You won't be able to read. But we'll have opportunities for Q&A. Okay? That's it. I'm going to pray. Thank you for being here. Um, and uh, make sure the only thing, Brian and I are going to put all the tables away tomorrow. Don't worry about that. So really, I, you don't need to stay. You can if you really want to, but we don't need you to. Um, but please pick up the garbage. That'd be about it. It would be very helpful. So let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you for our time tonight. Time to fellowship and grow as a family of families and a time to learn uh, about some deeper things in your word. I pray you will teach us about what it means, Lord, to be in Christ and what it means to grow in Christ. And you'll help us to understand the different aspects of, of sanctification and how you have set us apart and how you are continuing to set us apart, and how you are going to finally and completely set us apart to be a people with you in your presence, and we can't wait for that day. Until then, Father, help us to grow and to understand uh, through study of your word, through good conversation with one another, and may you be glorified by all of that conversation, and may you bless, Father, please, our efforts to train and understand godliness that much more. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.